You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, 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 yo. Hey, welcome back to another amazing edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. Have you ever thought about the future of implants and single implants and where they fit in your treatment planning process? and challenging the status quo. Today, I bring in one of the greatest thinkers, greatest teachers, greatest speakers in all of dentistry. This guy is not only one of the best of all time, he's an even better human being. His name is Dr. Bill Robbins, and he presents an amazing case against the implant. 50 years of dentistry, what he's seen and what he's learned. It is super powerful. Please listen to this. I know you'll enjoy it, and we'll see you soon. Hey, guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. I feel like a kid in the candy store because I get to hang around with the coolest people in all of dentistry, share some thoughts, some wisdom from some of the greatest teachers, greatest coaches, greatest people in all of this great industry called dentistry to help you create a better practice and a better life. And one of the greatest of all time is on with us today, Dr. Bill Robbins. And we're going to be talking about a very fairly, you know, uh, controversial subject, which is how dentistry has become enamored with implants. Dr. Bill Robbins. Welcome back, brother. Hey, it's good to see you, my friend. It's always one of my favorite things to sit and talk with you for an hour and just catch up and have some fun. Absolutely. Now, we're going to talk about this important subject, but I'm going to tell you guys, if you're listening, why I love this man. Not only has he taught me a ton, he cares about this industry, he teaches us so much, but he's also super cool and does some fun stuff. You just got back from a trip. Where was it? It was an almost three-week trip. Um, that I got back from last Sunday with my wife. We were in Italy for two and a half weeks um, with Jim Otten and his wife, Vicky. And we had an amazing time. We went everything from Southern Italy and Naples all the way up to the Piedmont region, which is in Northern Italy. And we drank a lot of Barolo wine and ate a lot of great food and had a super time. And then the last two days, um, I ended up in um, a town called Viadolid, Spain, which is a couple of mile, couple of hours north of um, Madrid, and I did a two-day course there for a friend of mine. So 
So we ended up with a little dentistry, but by and large, it was just a long vacation and it was super. Man, you are living your best life, brother. Indeed, I want, indeed I am. Like I told you, I want to be you when I get older. Um, and uh, I'm just going to encourage you. We're going to talk about uh, the Global Diagnosis Symposium and what Bill and Jim are up to. I'm going to encourage you guys to check it out. We'll talk about that later, but I can promise you, you won't be disappointed. It is awesome energizing, meaningful. You learn a ton. And so, Bill, let's go there. Let's talk about what's the, wh- what do you really want to call this segment? Let's give it a title and let's I, talk about why. Okay. So first of all, I want to set this thing up for you because you are one of the smartest guys in dentistry and I'm not blowing smoke. You really are one of the smartest guys in dentistry, but I'm going to say that there's one thing you know absolutely nothing about that I'm an expert on, and that is being an old guy. And that's what I'm going to start out with today. Um, I've been practicing for 50 years. This is my 50th year since I graduated from dental school. And so that automatically puts me in the category of old guys. And, you know, there's always this thing about getting old or older that people fight and they say, you know, it's not for sissies and all. Well, I'm going to propose to you that there are several good things about becoming an old guy. The first good thing is, is that by and large, people are nice to you. People that didn't necessarily used to be nice to me, they're nice to me now because they're just humoring me as an old guy. And I see that as a real positive. The second really good thing about being an old guy is people don't expect as much from you anymore. They don't necessarily expect you to remember their names. Um, They assume that you've lost a step or two cognitively, and they know that you can't hear as well as you used to. So they humor you. And and it's a great thing that people don't expect as much of me now as they used to. So those are two really good advantages. The third advantage that I'm enjoying a lot at this stage in the game as an old guy, I've learned earned the right to be a contrarian. And as we know, dentistry can be a fairly dogmatic uh, discipline. And I've seen that through my 50 years that people learn some piece of dogmatic information and they learned it maybe even in dental school and they've continued to believe it, repeat it and do it dogmatically and they'll fall on their swords for it. And that's true, especially with younger dentists. They come out of dental school. They believe that they had a great dental education and really wonderful faculty. And because their faculty taught them that, it's got to be true. And it may not be true or it might be partially true. But they live with that partial truth for the rest of their lives. And they never really are open to asking the question, is this really true or is this really the best way to do it? And so... I sort of moved into this phase of my life where I've seen lots of fads come and go in dentistry. And fad is sort of a negative term, but it's movements in dentistry that I've seen go up and back down. I've seen a number of them in my 50 years. And I love taking a look at those. And there's a couple of them right now that are sort of on my top shelf of tilting at those two windmills. And we're going to talk about one of them today. We can do another one somewhere down the road. The one I want to talk about today is the placement of implants in the anterior maxilla. 
implants have been available to us in our profession for about 40 years. And as we all know, they've been incredibly successful. And it has become the go-to way to replace missing teeth all over the mouth and certainly in the anterior maxilla. And through my many years of being involved in the placement of implants in the anterior maxilla, um, I have become more and more reticent to place them in the anterior maxilla for reasons we're going to talk about. And in the last five or six years, my statement has become this. Uh, I do not treatment plan single implants in the anterior maxilla in the young adult. And that's a pretty radical position to take because I get referrals in my practice. I'm still fairly active in my practice and I get referrals commonly from a, a patient or a dentist who has told this patient, generally an orthodontist, that we're going to align your teeth to your implants. When you get to be 18 or 19, you'll go see Dr. Robbins and he'll put an implant in and that will replace your upper missing lateral incisor. And that's what I did for many years. And then I started looking at some of the long-term results of my implants in the anterior maxilla. About 10 years ago, I started developing a concern about this. And by the way, I'm not unique in this. We're starting to hear more and more from the podium speakers saying, you know, we need to take a closer look at implants. Um, they're not doing as well as we thought they might be doing long term. We need to be a little bit more analytical about the placement. So I'm not the only one that's saying this. I'm just one of the ones that's carrying the banner right now. And I started making the transition away from replacing especially maxillary lateral incisors. It's a very common tooth to be lost for two reasons. First of all, it's the second most common tooth to be missing um, genetically. It's just not there. And the other is trauma. It's a very common tooth to be avulsed and lost during those formative years, you know, between the years of, uh, say, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And so I used to replace those lateral incisors routinely with an implant. And I had concerns about it, but we didn't have a good solution to it, to the problem, until a number of years ago. For me, it was about six or seven. And that is the bonded bridge. So I'm going to talk more about that as we get into this. But the bonded bridge has become my go-to replacement for the maxillary lateral incisor. But before we, we talk about the bonded bridge, I want to talk about some of the reasons that I've developed such anxiety about the placement of an implant in the anterior maxilla. I mean, is this a subject that you've heard anybody talk much about in your circles up until this time in history? No, not at all. It's come okay, up a good. little bit, but no one has taken a stance on it. All right. Well, that's great. I love hearing that because I want to be the guy that's tilting at this windmill. In fact, I just submitted an editorial to a fairly prestigious journal this morning as a guest editorial. Uh, on this subject, and I hope that it's accepted and gets published. And so this is this is a place I would love to consider a legacy issue for me, and that is I was one of the people that started raising the red flag about the placement of implants in the anterior maxilla. 
So as I've gotten more interested in this and looked at the literature more, I've come up with quite a number of reasons that I think implants in anterior maxilla are problematic. And I would like to just go over a few of those with you now before we talk about what the solution is. Let's do it. The first one is late growth. And what that means is, is that we were traditionally taught that using either wrist films or serial cephalometric x-rays that are overlaid over each other, starting at about age 18, you could tell whether or not a person's growth was complete. And once you can confirm that their growth is complete, then you can feel comfortable placing an implant. And generally that was in the range of age 18 for females and around age eight, uh, 21 for males. Those were the common numbers, the ages that we were given. And so we were told you can do these wrist films or cephalometric x-rays that are overlaid to determine if it's now finally the time to place the implant. Well, it turns out that neither of those are predictors of whether or not growth is complete. And this became very clear to me in a specific patient that really made a big difference in my thinking process. This is a lovely young woman in my practice that was 20 years old. We confirmed that her growth was complete. So we placed an implant in the number seven site, replacing a lateral, and she was missing a lateral and a canine on the other side. So we placed a, an implant in the canine site and put a pontic off of the canine. So two implants replacing three teeth, 2004. I saw her back on recall through the years, but didn't pay really close attention up until 2019, which is a 15-year post-op on her. And it looked like to me things were changing. And so I made a photograph of the way she looked in 2019, and I had a wonderful photograph, exactly the same magnification that was taken in 2004. And when I put those two photographs up next to each other, there had been tremendous changes in this young woman in 15 years. What happens is if a patient grows, the maxilla grows down vertically and the teeth move with the maxilla as it grows vertically, but the implants don't. They are like an ankylose tooth that stays in the same space as the other teeth continue to grow. And in this period of 15 years, her other teeth adjacent to the implants had grown vertically more than two millimeters compared to the implant. And it was becoming obvious now that her implants were no longer in the correct positions in her face because her maxilla had grown, grown vertically and brought teeth down with it, but the implants didn't move with the maxilla. So now the implants are high. The edges of the implants are three millimeters apical to the edges of the adjacent teeth. The gingiva is also in the wrong place because the implant holds the gingiva up also. So this was a seminal issue or a seminal turning point for me when I finally came to the conclusion that it made no sense to use implants to replace missing anterior teeth, single anterior teeth in a young adult. Now, let me make a caveat here. I'm not talking about a patient that's missing a bunch of front teeth, either due to trauma or agenesis. We don't have a good solution for those people other than implants. So I'm talking about the single tooth that's missing in the anterior maxilla. So I no longer believe in the young adult. And when I say young adult, I'm, I'm talking about 20, 30, 40, 
I see, I don't think we should be putting single implants in until other ways have failed. All right. That's my whole point today. If things that are available to us have failed, then we can move to the implant as the last treatment option. But the implant is by far the most aggressive way to replace a tooth. We have much more conservative ways. And so that's my belief system today. The second thing that happens to implants long-term is the tissue tends to thin over the implant with time. And as it thins, the color of the implant and the abutment starts to show through. And now you can see the grayness or blueness under the tissue. And it's a giveaway that this is not a natural tooth. And the other problem is, is that as we age, the maxilla moves back in this direction. And if the implants are here and the maxilla is moving more centrally over 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the implants are no longer in the correct position. They're facial to the rest of the bony housing. So I think the important question we have to ask is when we replace a missing maxillary lateral incisor with an implant when the patient is 20 years old, how long does this have to last? And assuming that the person we place it in doesn't have a major illness by the time they're age 70, there's a very high probability they'll live to be at least 100. So we're expecting this implant that we're putting in on a 20-year-old to serve them successfully for another 80 years. And my question is, what are the chances? And we don't have the data. We clearly don't have any 80-year data on implants, but I think our hearts tell us what the answer is. And the answer is, in a lot of circumstances, this implant has not a chance to be successful for the next 80 years. First of all, because of growth. Secondly, because of tissue thinning. Right. I had another seminal patient recently in my practice. This patient, we placed implants um, in number nine and number 11 and did a three-unit bridge when he was 80 years old. 80 years old, two implants on the central and the canine, a three-unit bridge. I recently saw him on a 15-year post-op. This gentleman is now 95. He's still a really cool guy a wonderful person to be around and the edges of his implants were up here and the edges of his natural teeth were down here. So not only do we not know who is going to have late growth because it doesn't happen on everybody, but we don't know how long it's going to occur. This gentleman had vertical growth of his maxilla from age 80 to age 95. And so these patients that I'm taking a close look now at are making me very nervous about not only my patients, but the whole world of dentistry that are putting in tens of thousands of implants in the anterior maxilla every year with really no thought of the long view. Yeah. We have to do our dentistry with the long view. Yeah. My question is, when you started to see this, was it falling on deaf ears? Was everyone, did you get a lot of pushback? I know you're being the contrarian here. But were people picking up a little bit of it, or was it a hard pushback as you were no, pulling up this operation? In fact, I've been talking about this um, in my lectures now for about the last four years. About four years ago, I decided to put together, actually, it was 
during the start of COVID when I had time. It's when I got serious about this lecture. And it was one I it was in my mind and it was sort of going to want to be maybe one of my last important lectures I would create. And it's entitled um, A 50 Year Retrospective, My Failures and Lessons Learned. It's a failures lecture. And it started out with four different different little topics. And now it's up to 21. <laughs> and so what I can do now is I can send this menu to a study club because, you know, that's what I primarily teach. I teach primarily at study clubs and I can send this to the director and together we can pick out about five of these subjects because that's all I can cover in one day, one one series. And my failures lecture on implants, anterior maxilla implants, is my number one. And I do it anytime I'm doing this this lecture, which has become my primary lecture now for study clubs, I always include that one. Even if they don't ask for it, I include it anyway. As you know, most of the directors of study clubs are surgical specialists. They're either oral maxillofacial surgeons or they're periodontists. And when I first started doing this, it made me a little nervous because I'm standing in front of a group of dentists that are the referrals of the surgical specialists. And I'm saying, I absolutely believe we should stop placing implants in the anterior maxilla in young adults. But here's what I found very interesting over the last four years. I've probably presented this lecture now 50 times. And essentially, never have I gotten pushback from the surgical specialist. Either, my and my case is a really strong one. It's a very strong case when I go through the literature of the point I'm trying to make. So there may be some that are just not willing to argue the case because I've made a strong case. But most of the surgical specialists say, I absolutely agree. So it's interesting, even though they have all continued to put implants in the anterior maxilla and especially the lateral spot, when I bring it up as a subject to be discussed, I almost never get any disagreement from the surgical specialist. And so I think I really believe the profession is open to hear this. I just believe that it has become a an automatic response to a missing lateral incisor. You put an implant in when the patient's 18 or 21. It's just the way we've always done it. <laughs> so it's not necessarily that everybody believes it's the best. It's just the way we've always done it. And the other problem is our profession is not really up on the, the alternative treatments. And of course, you can't just talk about the problem. You got to talk about the solutions. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. But there's a few other problems I still want to talk about. Please do. Another problem is just mechanical failure of the implant. And everybody that's done implants has dealt with broken screws and broken implants. And there are more and more of those issues to deal with because we have more implants in the head now. And so it's the worst call ever as a restorative dentist when you get a call and, it's, and, and your, your front office person comes and says, Mrs. Jones just called and her implant crown is loose. Ugh, that's the worst because you don't know if the implant is loose or if the screw's broken. And the majority of the time, it's not the implant, it's the screw. And as a restorative dentist, you don't know how long it's going to take to retrieve that screw or whether you're not going to be able to retrieve it at all. So here's one little practice management trip trick. When you have a patient in to deal with a broken screw and an implant, it should always be the last patient of the day. 
because you don't want to get them in at one, one o'clock or one 30 and get into it. Because once you get into it, you can't quit. It's an anterior tooth. You can't send the patient home without some replacement. So you may be diddling with this all afternoon and you don't want to foul up your afternoon. It must be the last patient of the day when you start to try, try to retrieve a screw. That's the third thing. The fourth problem is an interesting one, and it's a new one, actually, to the profession. In the last six or eight years, we've been starting to talk a lot about maxillary palatal expansion in the adult patient. And in the old days, the only way we could do that was with surgically um, uh, surgery, you know, orthodontic surgery, SARPI, surgically assisted rapid palatal expansion, where you'd have a, a, an adult patient with sleep apnea, a very narrow arch, where all those issues we deal with every day. In the past, the only way we could widen the arch to make more tongue space and a larger um, oral airway was to do a complicated oral maxillofacial surgery. Well, today we've got the ability more and more to do this palatal split more conservatively um, with mini implant assisted rapid palatal expansion devices. And up until recently, we could only do that in maybe up to 20-year-old ma uh, males and 40-year-old females. But now they're making custom appliances that go into the palate. And they don't, they don't have just four implants holding the appliance. They have six or eight. They're custom made for the patient. And there's getting to be a lot of reports now that we can do the palatal expansion on older males, which is very exciting. But the problem is, is that if the older male has an implant in the anterior maxilla, one of the floor, four incisors, and the palatal split is done, the orthodontist can't redistribute the space to make it all work at the end because you can't move the implant. So once we put an implant in the anterior maxilla, that inhibits the ability of, a, of our profession to ever do a palatal expansion on that patient. And as we get better at that, and pay more attention to it, we're going to be doing a lot of palatal expansions on adults as we become more um, influenced by the airway part of dentistry. Right. Right. So, so that wasn't a problem 10 years ago. It's a new problem that's going to be, I think, a giant problem because anybody that's got an implant in the anterior maxilla, we cannot do a palatal expansion on them. Right. Here's I, the next one. Oh, go ahead. As I start looking at the literature now in terms of problems with implants, I started looking at medications. And it turns out that there are a significant number of medications that at least have a correlation with implant failure. I'm not proposing that it's a cause and effect. Um, the data is not real strong on a lot of these, of these um, medications, but there's a bunch of medications that appear to have a negative impact on long-term success of implants. For instance, um, SSRI, um, Lexapro, Prozac, all the mood elevator drugs, there is a relationship between implant failure and those drugs. Um, there's also um, a relationship to vitamin D deficiency. There's also a relationship to proton pump inhibitors. That is omeprazole, Nexium. How many people in the world are taking large doses of Nexium? Well, there's a relationship between that and implant failure. Another one is allergy to penicillin. 
who would have ever guessed that there would be a relationship between penicillin allergy and implant failure? But it turns out that it may not really be related to the penicillin allergy because many clinicians that place implants put the patient on a short course of antibiotics before the implants are placed. And amoxicillin is the, the antibiotic of choice. But if a patient is amoxicillin, penicillin um, allergic, then commonly the next choice was clindamycin. And it turns out that clindamycin is a very poor choice as an antibiotic prior to placement of implants. And there is a relationship between using clindamycin prior to implant placement and an increased risk of failure. And after having said all of that, then you've got genetic factors. There are clearly some genetic factors that lead to implant failure also. So when you put all that together, it becomes, I think, an anxiety-producing procedure, especially in the anterior maxilla. I'm much more comfortable placing an implant in the posterior maxilla or the mandible because the results of a failure are commonly hidden from view. But in the anterior maxilla, you can't hide it. And that's the problem. There is no good way to hide it. And once the failure occurs, sometimes it's very, very difficult to recover from that failure. And then the final, and then I'll calm down a little bit, <laughs> the final and most common reason that implants fail is periimplantitis. And when we look at the literature, we can assume that of all the implants that we place across the world, somewhere between 25 and 50% of those implants will suffer periimplantitis. Wow. So there are a lot of reasons for our profession to have anxiety about the placement of implants. And I think we should be more thoughtful in the future about where and when we place implants and especially in the replacement of missing anterior teeth. Right. And I don't want to make your snowball any bigger, but this genie is out of the bottle and it's not going back in. You and I do a lot of education supported by implant companies. I've flown yes. on one of their planes. There's a lot of money when it comes to implants and it's, yes. it's got a lot of inertia to it. So it's, it's, it's pretty easy to go to a conference supported by the money around implants and, and, and breathe in that oxygen. Wouldn't you agree? You know, I, I would agree. Although I, I am definitely a glasses half full guy. My wife always kids me about, I'm tired of your damn positive <laughs> attitude, you know? And so that's clearly the way I view the world. But I believe, I hope my belief is, will be founded that implant companies will accept this right. because it doesn't serve them to have implants on a certain specific spot in a patient's head fail all the time. Right. And implants aren't going away. And we're going to be replacing missing teeth with implants forever because they're such a wonderful adjunct of what we do. But I'm talking about a much more specific circumstance, and that is single teeth in the anterior maxilla. And I would hope that the implant companies would be open to the idea that we need to look at that. And if, in fact, replacing a maxillary lateral incisor with an implant isn't the best idea, then let's don't recommend it there. Let's recommend other options, and let's put implants in places where they're going to function the best. 
Now, I don't know if that's the way it will turn out, but I'm hoping to be one of the ones to start this dialogue. And I optimistically believe that implant companies, if the case can be made based on data, that they would be open to that. I hope. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So, Bill, I'm picking up what you're putting down. What do I do? We talk about solutions. All right. So obviously it's easy to talk about the problem. It's very easy to talk about all of the reasons that we shouldn't be doing this, but we can't talk about the problem if we don't have a solution. And I talk about in my lecture, I talk about three primary solutions, but I'm only really going to talk any detail about two of them. The first is auto transplantation. Well, uh, that's the one I'm not going to talk about, but it is a legitimate play. If a child loses a macular central incisor, let's say at age 10 due to trauma, then it is a totally legitimate concept to take a lower second premolar and transplant it into that maxillary central site. I've been involved in some of these cases. My orthodontist is Dr. Tito Norris. I know you know Tito, you've met him. He's an amazing clinician. Yep. And he's done, I think, 25 or 30 of these auto transplantations through the years. And they're very successful. And the funny thing about it is, is they've been doing this in Scandinavia now for more than 60 years. Andreas, a famous Scandinavian um, periodon or uh, I'm sorry, endodontist, um, published data, you know, 40 years ago about how successful auto transplantations are. But it's not something that's done very commonly in the United States. So that's not my go-to. My two go-tos today are, first of all, canine substitution. And when I grew up as a general dentist, I was taught that you should never move a canine into a lateral spot for two reasons. First of all, it fouls up the occlusion. Your canine is no longer the discluding um, tooth in lateral excursion. And secondly, it narrows the upper arch and aesthetically it doesn't look good. And those things were both true 30, 40 years ago. But in the hands of a talented orthodontist today, trans, uh, canine substitution works beautifully. And again, my orthodontist, Tito Norris and his partner, Ray Caesar, are both really, really good at doing canine substitution. They've learned to move the canines into the lateral spots, but they don't lose any arch length when they do it. So the patients don't look triangular shaped. Also, the occlusion can be managed, I think, without a problem. The occlusion is not an issue for me at all. So my plea to orthodontists when I'm speaking at study clubs, please involve me in the treatment planning phase of children that are going to require restorative dentistry at the end. Whether it's peg laterals that need to be bonded or it's missing lateral incisors, whatever the circumstance, if I'm going to be involved in the treatment of that patient at the end of ortho, please involve me in the treatment plan because I may have some ideas that might be different than the orthodontist that we need to discuss. We need a treatment plan for the long term, not just the short haul, but for the long term. So canine substitution, I believe today is a totally legitimate treatment, but a couple of, of um, uh, parameters must be met with those canines. First of all, they can't be great big giant canines because we have to thin them down with burrs and make them look like laterals. 
So first of all, the canine has to be not a giant canine. And secondly, it can't be very dark. Some canines are dark yellow, and those just aren't good for canine substitution. But the majority of canine teeth work very nicely in canine substitution because they're not so large that with burrs, we can go in and thin them down, add composite to the edges and the uh, incisal edge on the side to make them look like lateral incisors. So I, I today have a great deal of enthusiasm for canine substitution as an option to replace a missing lateral. But my primary go-to today is the bonded bridge. And I first started doing bonded bridges, Maryland bridges, 40 years ago. And we used metal substrate. And they worked. They really worked well. But the problem was is they were all ugly because the metal of the substrate would show through the abutment teeth and make the teeth gray. So the pontic would look pretty and the abutment teeth would look gray. And back in the old days, we would put a wing on both teeth. We'd put a wing on the canine and a wing on the central. And we learned back in the 90s, we don't need to do that. We only want to put one wing. So today, we only use one wing to replace a lateral incisor. It's going to either be the wing on the canine or on the central, and that's based on a number of issues and, and also the, the belief system of the restorative dentist. But we only put one wing. So I lost my enthusiasm for the bonded bridge because they were unesthetic. And then there was a number along the years of options that were more aesthetic, but not strong enough. We had substrates that were made out of uh, reinforced composite. They were beautiful, but they broke. We then had Empress, beautiful, but they all broke. We now have Emacs. In my opinion, and that's all I'm giving at this point, in my opinion, Emacs isn't strong enough to do a bonded bridge with. Therefore, we didn't have a good solution for the bonded bridge, both aesthetic and functional, until I finally, till our profession, finally believed that you could bond zirconia successfully in the mouth. And I remember 10 years ago, so many people standing up on the podium saying, you can't bond zirconia, it just won't work, it just won't work. And they've been doing it in Europe for years very successfully. Matthias Kern wrote a book about the zirconia bonded bridge, and he's got a lot of wonderful data showing more than 10 years success, very, very high, greater than 90% success rate over 10 years bonding zirconia bridges. So once I believed about seven years ago that we could successfully bond zirconia in the mouth, that totally opened up that world to me to do bonded bridges that are both beautiful because the zirconia is tooth colored and strong because the zirconia has approximately the same strength as metal. That's important. Zirconia must be three Y zirconia. There are three generic types of zirconia, three Y, four Y, and five Y. Three Y is the strongest, 1500 megapascals flexural strength, way more than you need for the strength of a bonded bridge. 4Y is half that strength, and 5Y has the same flexor strength as Emacs. Essentially, it's a little stronger, but not much. So it's very important when a clinician orders um, at the lab a zirconia bridge, it's very important to order the, the framework to be made out of 3Y zirconia. So my partner, 
my two partners actually, but especially my partner, Dr. Marcella Alvarez, um, is the prosthodontist in my practice that bought my practice and I'm working for her now. And she and I have become the go-to people in San Antonio for the bonded zirconia bridge because we've done so many of them over the last five years that the word is sort of out in San Antonio that we're the place to go. So we're doing quite a number of these bridges in our practice, and they've been very successful over the last five years. I started doing them about seven years ago, but not many because I was nervous about it. But now we both do these bridges routinely, and we're having a very high success rate. In fact, um, I've had um, two break, and that was because they were made out of five white zirconia. Um, I've had one debond because I didn't use an appropriate bonding protocol. And essentially, everything, everyone that we've done correctly with three wide zirconia and an appropriate bonding protocol are all still successful up to seven years. So, granted, seven years isn't 80 years. And I think a very fair argument against the bonded bridge would be you know, you're cursing the implant because it's not going to last 80 years your bonded bridge isn't going to last 80 years either. And I absolutely agree. It won't last 80 years. However, the way it's going to fail, if it's made correctly, is it's going to come off. And when it comes off, all we have to do is to clean up the intaglio surface, clean up the tooth, and put it back in. We don't have to worry about bone thinning and vertical growth of the maxilla. We don't have to worry about any of those issues related with the implant. All we have to do is to clean it up and put it back in. So to repeat what I said earlier, I never treatment plan for the replacement of a missing lateral incisor in a young adult with an implant. It's going to be either canine substitution or it's going to be a one wing bonded zirconia bridge. And that's a pretty radical statement. That means never. If I'm involved in the treatment planning for the placement of one lateral incisor, I never treatment plan for an implant. However, let's say for some reason, perhaps there's too much space and we've got to deal with the reality that there's too much space and I can't do it with a bonded bridge. The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Tito to move the canine into the lateral spot I'm going to ask him to move the first premolar into the canine site, and then I'm going to put the implant in the first premolar site. So if I have to use an implant in the younger patient, and I talk about younger now, 20, 30, 40 years of age, if I'm going to have to place an implant, the farther to the posterior part of the mouth I can put it, the better. I'm not going to put it in the anterior maxilla if I can figure out any other way to do it. So what does that mean? I've got a 50-year-old patient that's missing a maxillary lateral incisor. What is my primary treatment option going to be? Unless proven otherwise, for some reason like very tight occlusion, it's going to be a bonded bridge. It's not going to be an implant because it's still got to last 50 years if we put it in at age 50 and this patient gets to be 100. So I'm not starting with the implant. The implant is for the patient where everything else failed it's the last option. Wow. So well said. And if you've never heard Bill Robbins teach, you got to watch him teach because it's one thing to hear him. 
but it's another thing to see him and then to answer have him answer your questions. So, Bill, I'm I'm gonna talk. I want to talk about a lot of things uh, after this, but I want to I want you to wrap a final bow on this. Any final thoughts on this? Yes, my, final, my final thought is implants are not a replacement for teeth. Implants are a replacement for missing teeth, and as long as we remember that, I would much rather have a canine in the lateral spot. I would much rather have a pontic in the lateral spot than an implant. We are in the world of minimally invasive dentistry. That is the catchword today, minimally invasive dentistry. And the implant is maximally invasive dentistry. It should be the last resort when we're replacing a missing tooth in the anterior maxilla. So well said. Brilliant, my friend. Brilliant. Now, I'll say to the listeners, if you have a study club and you haven't had Dr. Bill Robbins come speak, what are you thinking? Like, he is brilliant. And uh, I'm going to leave down his information in the show notes. So if you're not taking notes, flip up to the notes in Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. You're going to see notes on everything Dr. Robbins has shared, including information on how to get him to speak to your study club. I promise you you will love it. He's one of the few speakers that can go back three, four, five, six times. I've only been invited like three or four times. And then like, I've heard all your stuff, not Bill. <laughs> Bill keeps bringing it. It's good stuff. Now I have the good fortune of being a part of the global diagnosis symposium. I want you to talk about that. What is it? Where is it? What's going to happen? Well, let me first of all, briefly talk about global diagnosis education. Yes. So, um, and, and obviously, well, not obviously to everybody, obviously to me, the whole, the genesis of the whole thing was you, Kurt. And you, I mean, we've talked about this a million times, but when everything was going to pot in the world, um, the second week in March of 2020, um, you had a vision. And I'll always, to my deathbed, be grateful to you for your vision. And you called me and a few other people up just as dentistry was being shut down. And you said, I'm really scared for our profession, number one. And number two, we have got to do something to help our brothers and sisters through this time. And that's when you created the ACT um, COVID Relief Conference that met five hours a day for 10 weeks, and you had world-class speakers come in. And it was during that time, that involvement, that I had a lot of opportunity to listen to great speakers and hear people I'd never heard before, world-class speakers. And it was at this point that Jim Otten and I had been talking about doing some type of teaching as our careers were slowing down in our private practices. And at the end of the COVID relief conference that you created, Jim and I decided to start um, a virtual study club which we called, which we named Global Diagnosis Education. So it's now been going for three years, and we meet on Wednesday nights, twice a month, 8 to 10 Eastern time, and it's about interdisciplinary treatment planning. And Jim Otten is one of my best friends, and we had been good friends for a long time. Um, he has a very high-end restorative practice in Lawrence, Kansas. His practice is fairly parallel to mine, and yet it was different. Um, in my practice, the emphasis is on dental facial diagnosis and rehabilitation dentistry and all of that sort of thing. 
his practice in Lawrence was the same thing, but his real emphasis was on the joint and treating the joint patient, joint pathology, and how to inter- incorporate um, um, a, a disease, treating a de- disease joint into an interdisciplinary treatment plan. That wasn't really my skill set. So when we came together, it really was a marriage made in heaven. I brought a skill set that was really different than his skill set, and together it made this wonderful package, which we call global um, global diagnosis education. And so we've been now going for three years. Um, as I said, um, we meet twice a month. And if a per if somebody's interested in finding out about it, uh, go to our website. It is global education. No, no. Let me let me get it right. Global diagnosis Info- Global Diagnosis Education.org. Yeah. yeah. Global Diagnosis Education.org. And that has the information that's involved in joining. But last year, we started our first annual symposium. And we'd been getting to know this family, this global diagnosis family, for two years. But with a lot of them, we had never done anything except talk to them and seen their faces. And we wanted to hug them and see them face to face. So a year ago, we created the first Global Diagnosis Education Symposium and Kurt hosted it at his place in Milwaukee. And it was a home run. I think we had about 40 of our members there and um, Brian Schroeder was our keynote, one of the best speakers in dentistry. Kirk also spoke and it was a magic time, both dentally, behaviorally, we loved on each other and we just had a wonderful time. So we're going to do the same thing. Our second annual symposium is coming up um, in Milwaukee at the ACT Center. Um, Kirk is hosting us again. He will be speaking again. And it will be um, the 8th and 9th of September. So we'll all gather on the 7th of September, which is a Thursday night. We'll have cocktails and dinner. We will have a wonderful full day on Friday, a half a day on Saturday. We'll have uh, an event Saturday afternoon, a fun event, and then we'll all go home enriched. So that is the 8th and 9th of September. Yeah. And again, if you're interested in that, you can contact me about that. My email will be on the information that Kurt's going to give you. Another good thing about being an old guy, I forgot to mention, that is you can have an email that's AOL <laughs> and you can still get away with it. And so you, when you see my my address it's robinsdds at aol.com the way it's been now for the last 25 or 30 years however long we've had email so all you have to do is just send me an email and i'll give the information about the symposium or i'm always happy to talk about um, our virtual study club yeah so does your computer still say you've got mail no yes (laughs) (laughs) nothing's changed much with aol it's pretty much the same as always yeah i love it Uh, You are the best. I'm going to put a link, uh, like Bill said, uh, for his email right in the show notes. So if you're listening on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Amazon, doesn't matter. Flip up to the show notes. You're going to see all those links. You will see a a link to Global Diagnosis Education. I promise you, you'll love it. Check it out. It's an amazing group of people that will nurture your growth. Uh, and it is so much fun. And you'll also see a link to register for the Global Diagnosis Symposium. You have to come. You're going to get great education, awesome group of people. You will laugh a lot. It's an awesome, just an awesome experience. You'll go home extremely fulfilled, fired up, and and uh, it's it's dentistry can be a challenge to try to figure these things out on your own. Don't. 
Just don't. Get around a good group of people who care about you. So, Bill, as always, I'm eternally grateful for your friendship, your knowledge, how much you care about this profession, and you're just an incredible human being. So thank you for everything you do, my friend. Well, I'm I'm so grateful for our friendship also. Um, You know, that's one of the beautiful things about um, lecturing and being on the road some is the ability to get to know um, some of the people in dentistry that have really made a big difference. And you're one of them. You are. You're one of the people that have made a big difference in dentistry, certainly a big difference in my life. And I've learned a ton from you on the behavioral side, for sure, the management side. And so, you know, back to you. Thank you for your friendship and continuing friendship, by the way, and um, for helping us so much with this Global Diagnosis Education Study Club. It's been perhaps one of the most meaningful educational endeavors I've had in my career. And I know Jim Otten feels the same. Okay. Uh, it, we, we actually actually met last night. Last night was a pearl session. So last night, all of the members brought a pearl, a treatment pearl, behavioral, clinical, whatever. And we had an hour and 45 minutes of talking about, you know, pearls that our members brought to the table last night. So we've got a great family, a great community, and you're certainly a very important part of that. So thank you so much for the friendship and also for the opportunity to be with you today. I always enjoy this podcast. One of my favorite things to do with you. Well, buddy, it's my pleasure. And one of the things I'm going to make you do, you're going to have to do this. You ready? I'm ready. You're going to have to take me on one of these trips. <laughs> you're, every time every time I check in with you, I'm like, you've been on another trip with great food. Like some of it, none of it was about dentistry. You are just enjoying, I want to go on one of them. Just one of them. Is that okay? All right. You got to put a few more years in behind the mic first, my friend, before you get to go on these uh, these bougie trips that I'm going on. All right, all right. Well, I will. Uh, I'm going to make sure we make that happen. But uh, stick around while we say goodbye to everybody else. But thank you guys for listening to the Best Practices Show. I hope you enjoyed this. So do us a favor: hit the share button, share this with your friends, keep sending us suggestions for things that you want to see. Make sure. You check out the links uh, to all of Bill's information. Heck, send send Bill an information. He'll actually email you back. Get involved in his study club. Come to the Global Diagnosis Symposium. I promise you, you will absolutely love it. And if you haven't had Bill speak to your study club, get them out there. They will love it. So until we see you guys next time or you hear from us next time, keep watching or keep listening to the Best Practice Show. You guys enjoy your day. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.